This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. This podcast is built around stories of pro bono lawyers helping clients. But the longer I've worked on this project, the more I've been struck by all the invisible choices that we have to make about how to tell you the story. I mean, who talks? Who gets talked about? Whose name gets used? Who is the hero of it all? These are important, substantive decisions that can completely change the picture that a story paints for you, the listener. And we feel a lot of responsibility to be thoughtful about how we translate client and lawyer experiences into podcast stories. Now, our podcast team just came back from the annual Equal Justice Conference, where we put together a panel about how to tell pro bono stories ethically. That panel talked explicitly about the behind-the-scenes choices that can define a story's point of view and how lawyers can ensure they are telling stories ethically with respect for clients' strengths and their struggles. We realize that you, our listeners, would also enjoy getting a little meta and learning the tools for ethical storytelling. So we brought the expert panel back together on the microphone. Erin Kinsella is an expert in legal communications at Practicing Law Institute and a vital member of our podcast production team. Erin also spent over a decade working in communications at major law firms. Mari Carmen Garza is the chief of programs at Tahare Justice Center, a national nonprofit legal program working with immigrants who have experienced gender-based violence. And I'll be putting on my other hat as an expert in confidentiality and the ethics of client-centered lawyering. Together, we take an honest look at how pro bono stories can be unintentionally objectifying or traumatizing and we discuss strategies for telling stories well with respect for our pro bono clients. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. Lawyers love telling stories, which makes sense. Humans have always connected through storytelling. Stories help us raise awareness about an issue, and they can make people care deeply. But when lawyers tell stories about their casework, well, they have a special relationship to protect. They have a special duty of confidentiality and loyalty. And I think that duty is heightened when we tell stories about pro bono work. 
there's already such a power imbalance between pro bono clients getting help for free and their pro bono lawyers giving their skills and time for no charge. When we tell stories about our pro bono work, we had better do it thoughtfully. It's obvious we shouldn't make the client the butt of a joke or the object of pity. But we also better not make ourselves into caped crusaders swooping in to save helpless victims. Telling the story well means shifting the lens to see the clients as whole people and then figuring out how they do or do not want to feature in the story about working with a pro bono lawyer. Let's dive into our conversation with Mari Carmen and Aaron about how lawyers can use client storytelling ethically to advance pro bono and law firm goals. Hi, my name is Mari Carmen Garza. I am the chief of programs at the Tahere Justice Center. I am based out of the Houston, Texas office. I'm also the chair of the ABA Commission on Domestic and Sexual Violence. Tell us a bit about Tahere, the work that it does, and the clients that it serves. Sure. The Tahere Justice Center is a national nonprofit legal services organization that serves immigrant survivors of gender-based violence. We do this with trauma-informed, victim-centered, interdisciplinary legal services out of five locations across the nation. And what does it mean to do interdisciplinary legal services? Well, what we do is we provide not only the legal part, but we complement that work with social services. So making sure that they're connected, that they're receiving services, that they're dealing with the trauma is essential to make sure that we can get them to safety, not only in their legal cases, but in their lives. And and do you all work with pro bono lawyers? Yes, we work with pro bono lawyers. In fact, they have been a very important part of the work that we do. But our aspiration and our model is to have 60% representation through pro bono counsel. Clearly, Tahere is going to actively recruit pro bono lawyers to meet that 60% goal. And stories about clients are probably the best way to engage potential volunteers. But I wondered how the storytelling impacts the clients, especially when they are survivors of trauma. We have stories of our clients on our website. We share stories of our clients at our galas, you know, with our pro bono partners to recruit on particular cases that we want to take on. Storytelling has a very powerful way of conveying the work that we do and how we can help somebody along their journey to safety. So we believe that the story of the client holds, you know, vast power in not only their own healing journey, but in working in our spaces and creating the interest in this type of work that we do. What do you think is the power that storytelling can hold for gender-based violence survivors? To be honest with you, it's really important to not use a story in a way that is re-traumatizing or where you are just asking for information and 
trying to get somebody to share a story who may not be ready. But when an individual is ready and they want to share their story so that what they experience could be of help to others, that is a little different. And again, even in those instances, the storytelling needs to be client-centered and has to be in a way that is empowering and uplifting, not only to the individuals who are listening, but also to the client themselves. Many clients have told us, you know, sharing my story is part of the healing journey. Tahere is a specialized legal and social services organization with a very particular approach to client relationships. But we know that storytelling about legal work, especially about accomplishments, is also an important part of communications in law firms and legal services generally. So this is where I asked Erin Kinsella to help us think structurally about the role of storytelling in legal organizations. Hi, I'm Erin Kinsella. I'm the Director of Communications at Practicing Law Institute, the producer of this podcast. I work with our podcast team on producing, pursuing justice, and otherwise do communications generally for PLI. So thinking about lawyers and how lawyers use client stories, what do you think are the different goals that lawyers are trying to achieve when they start telling client stories? So some of those goals, thinking through what we might see, whether again in a law firm or at a nonprofit or anything in between, uh, you might be recruiting people to help. And this could be as simple as an email that solicits help for a pro bono client. Of course, there's raising money. Are you looking for a grant? On the internal side, I feel like it's worth mentioning because I don't think we talk a lot about internal communications and they're specific to every organization. On the external side, a purpose would be obviously marketing, reputation boosting. This is increasingly important, I think, for firms, for companies, because there is such a focus on social responsibility. You just see it more and more. Everyone wants those stories out there. They want to showcase their commitment and the good work that they're doing. And then, of course, you might also want to make a specific policy impact. So thinking through and starting to define what sort of the transactional purposes or goals of your storytelling can be a good way of centering and thinking through some of the questions and risk. I find Aaron's broad framing of what counts as storytelling That's really helpful. When I got asked to tell a true story about justice in front of an audience at the Equal Justice Conference, I got really thoughtful, careful about how to tell that story ethically. But when I'm dashing off an email to recruit a firm to take a case pro bono, I don't always remember that I am engaging in a kind of storytelling there, too. And I need to take the same care to do it ethically. Mari Carmen and Aaron discussed how sharing stories inside of your organization also must be done with care. You know, as we are sharing information internally, what we share is also important. Often we may share information about some of the real difficult parts of a client's story And just make it all about that, you know, the trauma that was engaged to solicit the sympathy and wanting people to really engage with this case and failing to see the humanity, the courage, the so many 
aspects of a survivor and resiliency that make this individual truly unique and courageous. And when we only share the trauma, we're just perpetuating this idea of helplessness. And it's incredibly reductive of who our clients really are. And, you know, it doesn't really tell the full story. You might have an intranet, you might have internal newsletters. They can really be essential for reinforcing your pro bono mission, obviously, and they can be good for morale. At the same time, they can be risky, right? You're in this internal environment. It's your intranet. No one else can get to it. It's an internal email. These are things that you just sort of have to learn to check yourself on, especially when it comes to client stories. We are here to help share their story and navigate those legal risks and so forth. But it is their case. It is their story. And, you know, it's really important to see it that way. I think this is an area where our rules of professional conduct can almost get in the way of ethical client-centered storytelling. Because the rule on confidentiality makes us focus heavily on not prejudicing the client and protecting client information outside of our law firms. But there is no official rule about respecting the client's dignity in internal communications. So when it is internal, we might not be so watchful and we might not be so respectful. And there's another way the official rules can lead us astray. This relates to external communications. Rule of Professional Conduct 1.6 gives lawyers discretion to disclose information where we think it is impliedly authorized to carry out the representation. Those are the exact words. This means we get to make educated guesses that if it helps the case, the client would want us to share it, and we can share without asking first. Here's why that can get in the way of being client-centered. Sometimes a story that is good for the case can be told in a way that is harmful for the client's life and dignity. We have to train ourselves to slow down and to think about how our information sharing impacts the client as a person not just how it impacts their legal matter. Traditional legal training does not always give us the framework that we need for using client stories well. So what do you think are some of the pitfalls that lawyers can accidentally fall into when using their client stories? Well, I think there's a few. And one that I'll talk about just now is not supporting the clients. Throughout, you know, sharing some of the things that they've accomplished or overcome after much difficulties can really bring up so much of that trauma again. And having somebody available or a plan to make sure that they are going to be taken care of emotionally, physically for what may be happening in their bodies, the dangers of the single story, right? The essentializing that you know, because this happened to one individual and one story, and that's it, you know, this is the same for everybody else, you know, out of this community, out of this country, out of like, the experience is similar. So, you know, I think I know I, a friend, Sarah Block, whom I interviewed before, 
you know, speaks about this in her book, but the single story is a serious problem for the work that we do. So survivors and others' experiences are so varied and they have so many different contexts to it. So when we boil it down to everything is the same as this individual story, I think we really harm so many individuals that do not fall into that same narrative of a story. So really important to share different stories, different perspectives, because I think that, you know, that's something that often people can fall into. These are all such important points about the inadvertent harm we can do to clients, communities, and the public's understanding of an issue if we are not careful about how we put client stories into the world. And I want to name something else that is often unspoken when it comes to telling stories about clients. There is an assumption that lawyers and their pro bono clients live in different worlds, that my neighbors or the people I meet at a party would never know or meet my pro bono clients, so there isn't much risk of a client being recognized or even finding out I told the story. When I make this assumption, I run a greater risk of disrespecting my client, making myself the hero, or breaching my duty of loyalty. To combat the problem, anytime I tell a story about a client's case, whether it is internal or external, I try to imagine the client is in the room. I assume the client will hear the story, and I want them to feel respected in my telling. Putting a client's dignity and desires at the core of my storytelling, that is one way of being client-centered. I asked Mari Carmen to describe what client-centered storytelling means to her. What does centering the client in telling pro bono stories look like? Well, it's really understanding the client, their unique situation, safety concerns that may come from sharing a story. We work with individuals with vulnerabilities, often fleeing violence. So who we share the information with to create additional dangers. So some of the work that we do is explore that with each of the clients that want to share their story and determine what is safe to share and in what circumstances, what may need to be de-identified to not put them in greater risk. Not only that, but then explain like what's going to happen to the story after they share it, right? If it's going to be on a website, how is that information going to be shared? Who might have access to it? So really centering what their needs may be, their potential safety surrounding the sharing of their story. At times, you know, we need to explain like a future employer might be able to read this or see this. Are you okay with that? And it might change, but this is really centering what is important to them while giving them some of the protections that they would need to be able to share it and continue to live in safety. So for instance, let's say somebody says, I'm in a moment, I want to tell my story. I want to help Tahare. I don't think that there's a safety risk, but boy, I don't want this to be the my identity when a future employer Googles me. Like, does that mean the deal is off? No story gets told? What can you do in a situation like that? We work with the individual. We look at, you know, do we use a different name? Do we 
share your image? You know, do you want to be telling the story yourself? Do we just narrate it? Is this going to be something that could be illustrated? Do we just put it in writing? There's different ways to share a story and we could do it in ways that can create that safety and still be empowering, healing for the survivor and uplifting to others. Even if a client's identity is completely masked and all safety concerns have been addressed, we still need to think about how the client is characterized in the story. How do we tell the full story of a client's experience without that client feeling exploited or objectified? We really like to look the courage, the empowerment, the things that they've already done, and also highlight that. You know, I think it's important if clients know how we talk about them, would they be happy with how we are portraying them? I think that is centering the client and seeing their humanity and seeing their totality. Here's another ethical issue we need to think about. What does true informed consent look like? And I am not talking about the signature on a release form. Sure, those might give legal protection for later disputes, but they don't usually represent thoughtful, considered choices. Mari Carmen talked about the importance of true consent. To me, one of the most important things is getting that client consent, right, to understanding of what and how the information is going to be used because they're the best experts in their own lives and what's there. So, you know, I sometimes see releases that are signed, but maybe no explanation that was shared in really understanding what you're doing when you are signing these releases to use a client's story. It really entails that we explore those options together and think not just one step in front of you, but two steps down the line where this information is going to be. And I think that is what a fully informed consent really looks like. I also think that sometimes, you know, we have attorneys where because it's something that was filed in court, it's a public record, and therefore we can use it freely when you and I know that to be able to get what's filed in court in a court of public record, it's not really that easy and it's not necessarily correct either. And then the other thing that I want to talk about is that often when we talk about minimizing risk, I know I work with survivors of gender-based violence, immigrants or otherwise, but this also applies to individuals who are not victims of domestic violence or gender-based violence. They too are required and entitled to have this type of protection and minimization of risks. But often when we talk about it, everybody assumes it's only something that we need to talk about for survivors of domestic violence, but it applies to all clients that we serve. Yeah, I can imagine somebody who sued their landlord for discrimination and won a landmark decision would not want to have that be the first thing that a future landlord sees when they Google their name, right? That's um, right. I mean, they might have been completely on the right, but it might get in the way of renting your next place. And so there are very good reasons why lots of people were going to want to think through the risk of having their story publicized 
and not just filed in the court record. Do you find that sometimes you you can gently remind clients to think not only about their own wishes, but about their kids' potential privacy concerns? I, that is really, really important. I think they may not be thinking about that immediately, but once the information is Googleable, right, or you put it out there, their children too might be able to access this information. And if they don't, their friends do, their parents, friends, teachers, somebody will know this. So, you know, having that conversation about who else might have access, sometimes it's really helpful. You know, there's stigma about being a victim. There's stigma about needing legal aid. And so I don't agree with it, but it's important that we know and that our clients understand and that they get to decide, you know, if that's information that they want to be known about them. And so it is imperative on us as legal professionals to have that conversation and to make sure that there's full understanding when they sign releases for us to use their stories. I think this is a good moment to turn to Aaron, our communications expert, to think about how we can still tell persuasive stories without reducing clients to just the trauma they suffered. I think people think that you have to tell the hopelessness and the dire circumstances in order to get people to volunteer their time or to part with their money that there is a belief that it is necessary to emphasize the trauma in order to actually tell a compelling story. So, Aaron, if somebody said to you, look, a story is only going to be compelling if you tell the trauma, if you make it sound like the client is so strong and doing great, no one's going to step up to help, what would you say to that person about what actually makes a compelling story? It, it's a fair question. I think that from a marketing perspective and certainly just from a human perspective and human impulse, we all have the tendency to gravitate toward the emotional side of stories, right? This is natural. It's, you know, we want to hear about fellow humans and how we can help them. And so, first of all, I think acknowledging that this is natural, that all of us, to a certain extent, are going to want to, you know, tell and even listen to stories that pull on our heartstrings, right? So thinking about it from a professional perspective, let's think about the context, whether we're talking about a, a law firm or we're talking about an organization like Tahare, we're talking about a vulnerable group of clients, certainly, but above all, we're just talking about other human beings who deserve to be centered as such. So I guess this might sound glib, but the first thing I'd say is just because it feels good or natural to pull someone's heartstrings or to emphasize the victimization of a subject doesn't necessarily mean that we should do it from an ethical perspective. But off the top of my mind, I think the stories that Tahare manages to tell while keeping the principles of ethical storytelling in mind are incredibly compelling. And by, I think, showcasing the strength and ability and, again, centering the client, they end up being more effective and compelling and, of course, less fraught with risk. I mean, I certainly feel like in some ways the most rewarding client relationships that I had in my time were with clients where I felt like we were partnering on the project rather than there were clients who I felt like I was 
carrying. <laughs> and so sometimes I think as I'm reading pro bono solicitations, that one that tells me this is a client who has an enormous strengths and capacities and really can partner with you. For me, I think that would be more attractive and more compelling. I totally agree. You know, I think I had the same experience when I had a partner on the other side of the case and we felt that it was always a better result in so many ways. And the client ended up feeling, you know, empowered by the experience. This conversation made me think about our episode, Justice Delayed about Mark Purnell and his fight to be released from prison after he was convicted of a murder he did not commit. We talked to four lawyers for that two-part episode, and every single one of them emphasized how much Mark Purnell advocated for himself and how strong he was throughout his case. Or I think about our very early episode, A Mother's Worst Nightmare, about Kiera, who fought to keep her family together and worked with a pro bono lawyer to clear her name when she was unfairly put on a child abuse registry. These are compelling stories, and they are compelling stories of people working with their lawyers to fight for justice. So, Aaron, if somebody was trying to think about how to tell pro bono stories and how to do it well. Like, it's, can you break it down into a set of elements that they can think about to put the story together? So there are four elements that have started to stand out to me as I've been thinking through this topic of centering the client and pro bono storytelling. Basically, it can boil down to first, identifying your audience. And secondly, focusing on the goal of telling the story. Thirdly, and of course, definitely not least, centering the client and minimizing the risk to the client. And, you know, this idea of centering the client is something that has been absolutely bred into me, like from the very first law school domestic violence clinic I ever participated in. But I know it's not necessarily a super common framework in traditional law firms. Can you Aaron, talk a little bit about your thinking and journey around learning about this idea of ethical storytelling and centering the client. I think it goes back to that idea of coming to the work from a marketing perspective, from a communications perspective. And again, thinking about those aspects of stories that make them compelling, it's natural that you would come at whether you're telling a story about a capital markets transaction or telling the story of, you know, someone helping a pro bono client ask, okay, what did the firm do? What did this lawyer do? How would the client be worse off if they hadn't ever encountered us? These are all some of the basic frameworks that you encounter. I think as I've gone along and I've had the privilege of working more closely with some of the best pro bono lawyers in the country and certainly the most dedicated. I've learned, I think just over time, you absorb more about framing the story from a client perspective and that, you know, just being sensitive, right? You start to, to think of what questions to ask and thinking about things from 
again, identifying the problem and issue spotting perspective or, you know, in, in communications and PR, we might think of it as, you know, what is the risk and making sure to consider and predict all the worst possible <laughs> outcomes of communicating in this way. So, from that perspective, I think that you start to become more sensitive to the ways in which telling these stories can create risk for the client. And that includes the risk of just like dehumanizing them and making the law firm or the lawyer into the hero or the savior of the story. Okay, so now I'm going to go into teacher mode a little bit. Remember, I told you this episode comes from a panel we taught at Equal Justice Conference. We want to play you a story from Tahere about a client using the pseudonym Maria. This story is told in first person, but is actually narrated by Maria's attorney, Rachel Sheridan. Listen to Maria's story now. Think about how the narrative frames Maria, her experiences, and her work with the legal team at Tahere Justice Center. Pay attention to what choices were made about how to tell this story like what to include and what to keep out. And ask yourself, does this make you feel compelled to help someone in a situation like Maria's? My name is Maria, and I grew up in a small town in southern Mexico. I grew up in an abusive household, and from an early age, I was taught that I must obey men and that men had the right to beat women. I already knew as a girl that this was wrong, so I went on to finish my college degree in law and art, work outside the home, and make my own way. My then-husband resented me for my independence. I endured unspeakable violence because of him, and the police wouldn't do anything. I made the incredibly difficult decision to leave everything I knew and flee to the United States. I worked hard to set up a life here, I started my own cleaning business, dedicating myself to my job, to support my family, and investing in my community for almost 30 years. But during a routine driver's license renewal, the DMV called ICE and I was deported from the home and community I created. My violent ex-husband found out and said that he was coming to find me. I fled to the U.S. again to escape violence, but instead of finding refuge, the government detained me. I was granted asylum, but then it was revoked because of a harmful legal ruling that restricted asylum for thousands of survivors, including me. For the 15 months I was detained, I was separated from my children. I don't have words to describe the harm that detention caused me, my family, my community. With Tahare's support, I was finally released, and Tahare helped me successfully appeal my asylum case. My journey to justice has been long, and I cannot forget the pain completely, but I can overcome it. With each barrier, I asked what the next step was to keep moving forward. I told myself, I can, I can, I can. And my Tahari advocate was there with me saying, yes, we are many and we can do it. The cycle of violence that I grew up with in my family, in my community, in a world where women suffer injustice, ends with me. My children will have a better future, one where they can live freely and are free to dream boldly. Okay, so what did you think about Maria's story? 
Did you see what choices were made about how to tell it? And did you find it compelling? I asked Mari Carmen and Aaron to talk about what they think makes Maria's story compelling and client-centered. It is a story that I think it's so beautifully said. It tells everything about what happened in this journey, but it kept our clients safe in the sharing of that story. So I think that when people ask me to share a story, this is the first one that I go to because I think it's so beautifully done. It talks about all the things in their country and, but then the challenges and also like the strengths of how courageous this individual has been and the endurance and perseverance. I learned a lot from watching Maria's story in particular multiple times and just really thinking through how the principles of ethical storytelling apply and are so beautifully illustrated. I think that it does such a fantastic job of not only centering her, but not making the problem the center, right? She's the center and the way that she's the agent of her own success, her perseverance, and not only the story doesn't start and end with her problem. It's it's a narrative and you get to hear about her outcome and beyond. There isn't the sense that the story just ends with the intervention and help of an outside force. So all that, I think, is such a good example of, of this type of careful and thoughtful storytelling that's still very effective and teaches you what you need to know. I like Maria's story because the things that both of you have said, but also because it, honestly, it emphasizes the working relationship between the lawyer and Maria. And obviously the legal work that the lawyers did was extraordinarily important, but people want to know who was the person who was impacted and how were they impacted. We could all do a better job of talking not just about the legal procedure or the legal outcome, but talking about how we brought our own humanity to the lawyering and to working with the client. And that's part of what we try to do when we tell the stories through this podcast is really get lawyers talking about what was it like to work with this person? What did you learn from your client? A big reason why Tahereh is so good at telling client stories is the work of their communications team. Recently, I had the pleasure of talking with Tahereh's communications director, thanks to Mari Parman for introducing us. And we were talking about ethical storytelling in particular, which is not something that you see a lot mentioned, I think, in legal marketing communications. Anyway, from my experience, there are principles and guidelines out there that are really useful in, in applying them. But these resources are freely available so that whether you're working at an organization that has a comms team, whether you are a comms person or you're a lawyer or not, you can learn about and apply these principles to your own storytelling or as you're reviewing the work of others. Our comms team is amazing. Not only do they think of all the logistical things and work with our, you know, social services team and individuals that, you know, have helped the client to make sure that when we are sharing the story those supportive individuals are available to the client, but then they go beyond that, right? They really think of everything. They think of everything with us as the advocates that are working on the cases to identify what stories are really, truly 
you know, unique or we could highlight, but then it's the support going through and narrating and helping craft what the story is going to look like. I mean, they're key for the work and they are incredibly sensitive to the needs of the survivor. And I think that's really important because, I mean, I don't know, I've not worked with anybody that's just like, no, we're going to share the story, but it's like the extra care that is involved to make sure that the client is going to land safely at the other side, that the story is going to be told with the most ethical way possible is also really important for them. I do think that Tahare is somewhat unique in that I have observed that your comms team is as grounded in the client-centered values as your social services team or your legal team. What I want to compliment you on is the way that is a through line throughout the organization, because I think sometimes in nonprofit, the development director or the comms people have not been given that grounding. It's not on them. The agency itself hasn't done the work of grounding them in the principles and values. And sometimes the message is raise as much money as you possibly can so we can keep doing the work. And organizations have to do the work of ensuring that you have a clear set of values and that everyone, including your marketing people and your and your fundraising people, are also grounded in those values. It is our uh, organizational values to do that. And, you know, we do that work together. And when there's trainings, there's all staff trainings. Everybody has to go to these trainings because it's so important that we're all speaking the same language and, you know, living the same values. And we all have different parts to play within the work that we do, but it's important that we all have the same values in mind. So that brings me to a question I want to ask you, Erin, because the law firm context is very different and pro bono, even for a firm where pro bono is important, it's still a much smaller slice of what they do. I mean, what do you think might be the biggest challenges for law firms and their marketing teams trying to do pro bono storytelling well? I think it's mainly comes down to a lack of awareness, maybe an awareness of the resources and guidance that is out there. I, I think in many cases of marketing communications from the communication side, it can definitely be a learn on the job type of thing. You're thrown in. It's a hectic environment. It's very challenging. There's never enough hours in the day. There are never enough people doing the work. So, you know, just the opportunity to step back and remember that that this telling stories about this type of work is, is, first of all, it's unique, it's different than telling stories about other types of work that that the firm does and it doesn't necessarily fit into a neat box and being aware of these principles around responsibility to the client and not to speak for lawyers, but I think it's, you know, they can learn about storytelling from the comms professionals, but that's not their job, right? Their job, however, is they should be familiar with these principles of confidentiality and professional responsibility and maybe take the conservative approach when it comes to sharing this information to get back to the idea of, you know, publicly available details. There have been times when I've been handed a decision 
that it lists clients' names, that lists details about clients. And it's read this. We got a great result for this client. Let's write a story about it and get it on the intranet. And also these details are already available publicly. So if I don't know to ask these questions in the first place, so so that's the start. I think it's just looking for these resources, uh, starting the conversation and sharing knowledge when we can. Erin has pulled together a list of resources for learning about ethical storytelling, and we will link to those on the episode page. And we do owe a special thanks to Elaine de Leon on Tahereh's Director of Communications, for all that she shared with us about how to tell clients' stories well. But this is also a good time to remind folks that just because details are in the court filings, that doesn't mean the lawyers are free to share them with the public under our existing rules. While the old confidentiality rule protected secrets, the modern Rule 1.6 says that we, the lawyers, don't disclose information related to the representation. In 2017, the American Bar Association issued Formal Opinion 479, saying that information in the court filings is not considered to be generally known. That opinion specifically related to the rule on using information to the disadvantage of a former client. But I think it also has implications for how we interpret confidentiality under Rule 1.6. And here's the tricky part. Lawyers get taught the ethical rules, but the firm has to make sure the marketing and communications team follows those rules as well. And sometimes... The power dynamics between the marketing team and the lawyers can be a little unclear. Who has the power to decide what does or does not go into a story about a success at the firm? I asked Aaron to talk that through for us. If someone from marketing is coming to you with an ask, say you're a junior attorney or someone who's just joined a firm, that doesn't mean that you have to say yes. You know, even if you're getting pressure from firm management to, to share stories for recruiting or whatever transactional purpose it might be. So just knowing that we all have agency and responsibility within our roles. Obviously, what I do right now is really different. And I would just say that I feel so lucky to be with an organization that has pro bono at the heart of our mission, like within our mission statement at PLI. Part of what I get to do is listen to and learn about these various stories about pro bono working on this podcast and other marketing and communications efforts that we do. And you come to see that it's a multifaceted world out there and and the goals are multifaceted and everyone's coming at it with different information and different awareness at play. Sometimes the answer is just so simple. Aaron is right that good communication flows from an awareness of the different interests involved. So ironically, that means we have to get good at communicating with each other about our interest in order to get good at communicating about our work with pro bono clients. Marketing teams and lawyers communicating about the best way to honor a client and achieve a goal with a story. Lawyers and clients 
communicating about what it means to publicize a story and what the options are for how to do it safely. And all of us being open to hearing stories about fully described people, both their strengths and their struggles, and being willing to imagine the ways that each of us can contribute to their journeys. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu/probono. <laughs>